Father, we thank you that you are our God and that we can worship the one and only true and living God who made heaven and earth. Thank you that you are a merciful God, a faithful God, and that you care for your people. You care for your creation. Lord, you care. All your works are wonderful, and we praise you for each one of them. Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would meet with us in a special way, Father, that you would manifest your presence to us as we look at your word, that our hearts would be warmed, strengthened, encouraged. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would challenge us, that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to understand the word of the Lord, and that you would give us the grace to obey those things that we hear this morning. I pray, dear Father, that you would help me to be faithful in the proclamation of your truth, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, and that you would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. We ask this in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I want to particularly focus on verse number 16 this morning, but verse number 16 begins with the word therefore, and so when you see the word therefore, we have to ask the question, as one man said, what is it therefore? And if you ask the question what it is therefore, it thrusts you back into the earlier parts of this chapter, and quite frankly, even into the end and latter parts of chapter number 10, particularly from verses 25 to verse number 30. Now, it's important to understand that the book of Hebrews was written to a professing Jewish believers uh, who were consider considering retreats. These were people that came out of Judaism, heard the word of the truth, believed on the Lord, uh, made a profession of faith, as it were, and they were transitioning from uh, Judaism and the ritualistic way of the Old Covenant to New Covenant Christianity. And they were learning about Christ and all the things that Christ was uh, and is and had done. And so the writer of Hebrews recognizes this, and uh, these people, although they were challenged and they were confronted by, the, uh, by their newfound faith, uh, they were tempted to draw back. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. In the face of all the uh, early church persecution, the rejection, uh, being kicked out of the Jewish synagogues, rejected by families, would bring in a lot of uh, persecution. And so these ones that had come out of Judaism into Christianity were now considering retreating and saying, well, we better go back to perhaps the synagogue, or maybe Christ isn't all that we thought he was when we first made a profession of faith. And so the writer of Hebrews deals with uh, this uh, what I would say, these fence sitters or these ones that are considering retreat by scattering throughout the book of Hebrews what is commonly called warning passages. You'll find them in chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 going into chapter number 6. You'll find them uh, scattered throughout this epistle, particularly at the end of verse number 10 and then also in verse, uh, chapter, number, uh, chapter 10 and also in verse, uh, chapter number 12. And so what the author is, is doing here is addressing these people. He's showing how Christ is better than the Old Covenant, that Christ has a better priesthood. He, he is a better uh, saviour, a better sacrifice, and, and he's calling them to go on and follow Christ. And then he challenges them. Now, don't draw back. Don't give up in the face of opposition. Continue in the faith. And so this is the exhortation that we find, particularly in chapter even number 10, if you want to turn back there and look with me, uh, chapter number 10, uh, verse number 
35 to the end of the chapter. Now, there's a warning passage in verses 26 to verse number 29, but I want you to read with me verse number 35. Follow along here. It says, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that you, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little, very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And so here in chapter number 10, it finishes off with an exhortation that we are not of those who who make this profession of faith and draw back and shrink back in the face of opposition, but we are those who have true faith, those that believe to the saving of our souls, those that believe and are saved. And then he goes on in chapter number 11 to unfold some examples of men that believed and were saved, men that endured in the faith, men and women that that gave glory to God by their obedience and by doing the will of God. And these are set forth for us as our examples, insomuch that in chapter number 12, verse 1, uh, the writer also says, seeing that we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us go on, let us run the race, let us look unto Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he gives Jesus Christ the ultimate and obviously final example for the one who is to be our exceeding great reward. And so here in this passage, we look at these heroes of faith, as they're called, or these men and women of faith, but we are not to see them isolated from the warning and isolated also from the encouragement for us to go on in faith. And then we come to verse number 16 of chapter number 11, where we see that therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared a city for them. And so here we see this wonderful truth that God is unashamed to be called their God. But to properly understand that, we must first understand why it is that God makes such a declaration that he is unashamed to be called their God. And so we're going to begin by looking in verse number one and just surveying these next uh, 15 or 16 verses, and then we'll uh, conclude with some thoughts on verse number 16. What is a faith that pleases God is the question I want to first ask. What is a faith that pleases God? I'm sure all of us here today would have some form of profession of faith, but what is a faith that actually pleases God? Well, it all unfolds here from verses 1 to verse number 16, and we'll have a look at that. Now, verse 1 says, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And the, the, the chapter here begins with a practical definition of what faith is. Now, this is not a full theological definition of what faith is. In fact, chapter number 11 doesn't give us the full theological definition of faith. But what it does is it helps us see faith in practice, what faith practically looks like in the heart and in the life of those who profess it. And faith is described here as being sure of what is hoped for and being certain of what we do not see. Faith contains within it a surety and a certainty of that which is both future, which is hope, anticipation, and also it contains a certainty of that which is invisible, that which your eyes does not see. And the Bible teaches us in verse number two that this is the very thing that the ancients were commended for. They were people, and we will see some of these people, but they were people who were were certain about uh, things that were to come, and they believed in the things that they could not see. He gives examples like Noah. 
Noah did not see uh, the flood when he was building the ark, when he was a preacher of righteousness there for 120 years. He didn't see the flood, but he believed that it was coming. He believed that the judgment was coming. And so he acted in faith uh, in such surety, in such certainty that people would have thought he was mad perhaps for building such an ark. But he believed God and acted in such a way. He was sure of what he hoped for and certain of what he did not see. And so we give these examples here of, of Enoch who walked with God and God had taken him. And then we see Noah. But then we come to verse number six and we have more of an unfolding of the practical definition of faith. And it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And here, once again, we realize that faith is required in order to please God. The Bible says that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And it is by faith that we please God. And so, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But then he goes on to explain what faith kind of looks like. Because he that comes to God, faith comes to God, and he believes that God exists. And that he rewards those who diligently seek him. We must not only believe, dear people of God, that God exists... That's one thing to say, I believe that God exists, but it's another thing to believe that God rewards those who diligently and earnestly seek him. And that's a very important truth that we have to come to realize because if we just think that God exists, we might have a view of God that paints God out as if he's not really caring about what's going on in our lives and what's really happening here. He just exists in the heaven and he doesn't look down upon the earth and he's not concerned about my life. He's not concerned about what's going on in my heart and in my mind. But the writer of Hebrews goes on further than that and says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe not only that he exists, but that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that explains something about our God. It explains him as one who not only exists, but one who is watching and observing, and one who even is making a judgment, and one who is examining the hearts and lives of his people to see if there is such a faith there that he will one day reward Remember what it said in verse number 35 of chapter 10, that they received the reward because of their faith. And so God blesses those who diligently seek him. And that we must remember. If we want our faith to be strong, we must not only think that God exists, but we must come to the belief that God is watching and God is caring and God is involved in the details of my life and, and it concerns him. And that he's wanting me to seek him. And he calls me to seek him. And as I seek him, he will bless and reward the seeker. And then we are given more examples in verses 7 to verse number 12, which we won't look at. But examples of Noah and Abraham, Sarah, uh, Abel, we had Enoch before. And uh, they further describe what faith looks like in practice. But I want you to draw your attention to verse number 13 and consider... This statement here, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And once again, we're introduced now to the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there are some key elements in their faith that we must take note of in verse number 13. It says, all these died in faith, but it says this in verse number 13, they did not receive the things promised, and that was all the things promised. They may have, you know, he had Isaac, which was, which was 
part of the promise, but not the full blessing of, of the entire promise, which we'll look at in just a moment. But the fact is, with faith, there are things promised. We must remember that. Faith in the promises of God. God has spoken, therefore we believe. God warned Noah, Noah built. It was built, his faith was built upon the word of God. And so faith has things that are promised. Look at that in verse number 13. And what's the next part here? Not only things promised, they not only heard the things that were promised, but they, what? Saw the promise. Now that saw, we could put in inverted commas, because they didn't see in the sense that we think they saw. For faith is the things hoped for, right? The evidence of things not seen or the surety and the certainty of things not seen. So they perhaps never actually saw all the things that were promised. In fact, it even says that they didn't even receive the things that were promised. So it was by faith that they had seen those things. They set their eyes toward that which God had promised. God gave a word to his servants and they believed the word of the Lord and they believed it so much so that it was as if they saw it with their very eyes. This is the implication of the text. Not only did, did, did they have things promised, they saw the promise, but verse 3, they welcomed the promise which is the idea of they embrace the promises of God. What God said to them, not only did they hear, not only did they believe, but they also embraced it. And then it also says, and admitted that they were strangers and pilgrims. That means that they lived in light of those promises. And we're going to see that in just a moment. I want to take the example of verse number, four, uh, verse number uh, 15, sorry, verse number 8, which is the example of Abraham, and it's playing out here. Look at verse number 8. It says, by faith, see if you can pick up all these elements in this passage here. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Look what it says here in verse number 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so we see in the life of Abraham, God spoke, God called Abraham, and he made promises to Abraham. And Abraham heard the promise. Abraham believed the promise. In fact, Abraham saw the promise, even though he did not see the promise. He saw the promise by faith. And not only did he do that, he embraced the promise and he welcomed the promises of God in so much that he admitted that he was a stranger and an alien or a foreigner in the world. He lived in light of the very things that God had told him. God said to him and promised him a land, an offspring and blessing. And he said, get thee up out of thy family, out of thy kindred, go to a place that I will show thee. And he went not knowing where he was going. And as he went, he believed God. In the book of Genesis, chapter 23, verse 4, it says this. This is Abraham speaking. He wanted to find a place of burial for his wife, Sarah. And he went to the sons of Heth and he said this. He said, I am an alien and stranger among you. Sell me a property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. He was admitting that he was a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. Here he meets the sons of Heth and he says, this is who I am. I'm an alien and a stranger. I need a burial place even for my own wife. Next part of, of, of Genesis 47, verse 9. Same thing, Jacob. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. 
The Bible's teaching us here that these men not only were promised things by God, but they so lived in light of those promises that they confessed, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers, or they were foreigners in the world in which they lived. And it says in verse number 14, it carries this idea through in verse 14 and 15. It says, people who say such things show People who say that they are aliens and strangers on the earth, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But they did not return. Here's the thing that that we are to learn from this passage. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob used language, aliens, strangers, pilgrims, that were identifying with the fact that they believed the promises of God. They believed the very things that God had promised them, and they lived in light of them. And in essence, what the writer is saying here, they were looking for a country far beyond uh, what was Chaldea or Babylon. They were going beyond that. They were going over and beyond that. They were looking to even heaven, the ultimate fulfillment of that promised land. And he says if they were thinking or setting their minds upon going back to the country, they, they would have returned to it. They had opportunity. They could have gone back. But they didn't. Why? Because their minds weren't set on what they left. They were so consumed with the promises of God and by faith so welcomed and embraced them that they looked on forward and kept on looking forward. They had their sights on another land. And so they lived as Bedouin, desert people, wanderers. They lived living in tents. They had no fixed dwelling. Their eyes were as a land of promise and, in fact, ultimately heaven itself. Verse 16 says this, look what it says, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Oh, they could have gone back to Chaldea, but no, they were people of true faith, that endured in their faith and continued in their faith, and they were people that went on looking unto heaven Even the language of verse number 16, they were longing for a better country. The word longing is in the present tense. They kept on desiring. They kept on longing. In fact, the word is translated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, about a man who desires the office of an overseer. It says that he, he stretches himself forward to. And this is the idea. These, these ones, these pilgrims, these people of faith, they stretch themselves forward to the promises of God. They did not look back. They did not shrink back. They did not draw back. They kept on pressing forward because they saw that better country. And they believed the promises of God. And it says that in verse number 16, they were longing for a better country. If they would have thinking about the country they could have gone back to, they could have, but they were longing for a better country. And that doesn't only prove to us that they were strangers and pilgrims, but what it also proves to us and shows us is that these men had a holy dissatisfaction with anything less than the promise of God. They understood that what God had promised was far better than what they could obtain in their own strength. They understood that there was nothing else out there that, was, that could, could equate to or that could be leveled on the same plane as that which what God has promised them. And that's why they kept on going forward. Their faith was commended. It was a faith that believed in God, sought after God, heard the word of God. It was a faith that saw the things unseen, that welcomed them, that embraced the promises. And they proved this faith by the life that they lived. They endured in their faith. 
Notice verse number 13, the first words of verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. These are a people who displayed true faith, God-born faith. Faith wrought in their hearts by hearing the word of the living God. These were the faith of God's people, God's chosen people. And all these people were still living by faith when they had died. In fact, they are the perfect examples of chapter 10, verse 35. Let's look at that just quickly one more time. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who's coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And this was manifested in the life of the patriarchs. This was seen in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those in chapter number 11. And so God responds. Verse 16. Therefore. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Such faith proved faithful as a ground of response from God. God saw this faith. God saw them continuing in the faith. God was pleased with the very faith that they expressed in their continuing on in obedience and to his commands and to his ways that God was going to reward them. And it says here in verse number 16, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Yes, therefore, God, God, God himself, the God who created heaven and earth, the God who is overall the creator, the redeemer, the king, God who is sovereign Lord, Jehovah, the one who sits in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. Yes, the God who is declared as holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty, the one whose the whole earth is full of his glory, the one who spoke and all things came to be, the one who sustains all things. Yes, that God, that very God of whom we are unworthy of, that very God of, of heaven and earth, the creator, the one that has redeemed his people, this God was unashamed to be called their God. Do you, do you get the contrast here? Here is a God that's made heaven and earth the mighty creator of all things. He's unashamed. Unashamed to be called the God of worms, to be the, call, call the God of sinners, to be called the one, the God, and identify with those that have, have walked away from his commandments. Think about this. How amazing this is. That the God of heaven and earth would identify with mere man. Oh, we heard it prayed before. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou hast visited him? You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned his head with glory. What is man? That God would not only look upon man. That not only God would condescend to man. But that God would identify with man. Therefore God was unashamed. And is unashamed, listen, to be called their God. The word to be called literally has the idea of being surnamed their God. God was so willing to enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He called them 
he, he opened their hearts. He helped them to see the truth. They believed on him. They followed him. They obeyed him. They kept on faithful to him. They did the will of God. They, 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 they looked beyond to heaven and kept on faithful to God. And God was unashamed to be called their God. Because in them was the faith of God. The faith of God's people. God was pleased with their faith. And this is the passage that we read in Exodus chapter number 3, verse 6. Remember that? And chapter, verse number 15 of that chapter that we read in the Bible reading. It says, Moses said, what shall I call you? Yes, I am who I am. But also my name for all generations will be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God was unashamed to be called their God. God was unashamed to identify with the patriarchs, with those who had left all that they had to come after him. Those that had truly believed on his name. The people of his covenant, the people of his promise, the people who heard the word, heard the covenant, saw the blessings of the covenant, embraced the promise of the covenant, and those who lived in light of the covenant promises as they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth. Come with me to Isaiah 41. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Isaiah 41, verse 1 to 14. Isaiah 41, verse 1 to 14. Page 715 in the Church Bible. Psalm 41, page 715. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes with the anvil. He says to the welding, it is good. He nails down the idol so it will not trouble. But you, O Israel, listen to these words, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From the farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish, though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Though those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And this passage shows us how God is committed to his people. That God is unashamed to be called their God. That God is unashamed to identify with them, to help them, to by his right hand to strengthen them. This is our God. 
This is the God of Abraham. This is the God of Jacob. And this is our God, the one who has condescended in Christ Jesus, has born of a virgin in a manger, lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross for sinners to redeem a people for himself. This is our God. Covenant-keeping God. And he rewards his people. One of the ways he rewards his people is by being unashamed to be called their God. Is there any, any, any greater privilege that you could ask for this side of eternity but to have the God of heaven and earth be unashamed of you, to be called your God? Is there not much here for our consideration? Are not these things written for us? Oh, for a faith that pleases God, a faith that hears the word, embraces, welcomes, and lives in light of it. Oh, dear Christian, do you view your life as a pilgrimage? Do you see yourself as an alien and stranger in the world? Oh, for a heart like these pilgrims. Oh, for a heart like these sojourners. Oh, for a heart that longs only for heaven. Oh, for a heart to go to that better country. To not set our affection on other things, but to have a heart that seeks that city whose builder and maker is God. Oh, for a heart that desires and longs to be with God and God alone. Let me ask you, dear people, where is your affections? Oh, people of the covenant, what is your consuming passion? How often do we set our hearts upon earthly things and mind earthly things? We can become so concerned with, with, with earthly success. We can be so concerned with the praises of men. We can be so concerned with our business or so overwhelmed with our entertainments and with our luxuries and our relationships that we lose sight of that promise of God and lose sight of the glorious promises that he has set before us. What are the things that we prize more than anything else? What are the things that we cherish above all else? Oh, that we might hear the words of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. If you then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where God sits on the right hand, where Christ sits on the right hand of the throne of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, and when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you shall appear with him in glory. If we set our eyes and our hearts upon earthly things, we will never be satisfied. The Proverbs 27 verse 20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Or oh, to mind earthly things is actually more characteristic of them who know not God than those who do know him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 5, they that are of the flesh or those that follow after the sinful desires, they do mind the things of the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those that are of the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says that, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't be as the heathen do who are so consumed about the things on this earth. But you are my children. Seek first the kingdom of God. I will take care of you. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says these words, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. But there's also a warning here for those who profess Christ. And all you have is a profession. 
I challenge you and urge you this morning to examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, to prove your own selves. Beware of that slothful faith which takes that which the Lord has given him and buries it in the ground. You remember the parable there. And he cares little for his master's good, cares little for his master's kingdom. Beware of a faith that fails to go on in obedience, a faith that does not, uh, that shrinks back in the face of opposition. Beware of a faith in your heart that seeks to live the Christian life at bare minimum, that seeks to live a Christian life of just mere comfort and ease. Oh, there are many blessings that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And in this world, there are many things that God has given us to enjoy. But my friends, set not your heart upon them, but on him alone. Be careful of that faith that constantly shrinks from opposition and takes the path of least resistance. Beware of a faith that seeks always to gain but never to give to Christ. For if your faith is so like that, you must beware that if the Lord Jesus returns at a time that you are not ready, just like it says in the parable, he may call you a wicked and lazy servant. Very strong words from the Lord and Savior. And his word also says that he will throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Never forget the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Be careful, O soul, that only has a mere profession, but has no life that reflects that they are strangers and pilgrims in the world. But Christian, take comfort this morning. Oh, dear Christian, God is not ashamed to be called your God. If you have been redeemed and have a faith that is being perfected by the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not perfect faith, it's a faith being perfected, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ working in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. If you have taken up your cross and followed Jesus, if you have put your hand to the plow and haven't looked back, if you have come out from the world, as it were, and have been separate, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, take comfort. Take comfort, for God is not ashamed to be called your God. In fact, in that same passage where he says, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Look what he says. He says, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. He said, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. These are our precious promises, O people of God. That we have a father who is in heaven, who cares for his people. That is unashamed to be called their God. He that believes on Jesus has everlasting life. Go on believing, my dear friends. Hold fast the confession of your faith and keep looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. For the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is not ashamed to be called your God. Go on, brother. Go on, sister. God has prepared a city for you. Never forget the words he said to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house and many mansions or rooms, if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. O people of faith, let us seek the God who sought us. How can we be ashamed of him who is unashamed of me? The hymn writer says, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured, these have have grasped my sight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. You are a God of truth and mercy and of grace. You have called us to yourself and redeemed us by your mighty hand. Help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have been called to. It might be said of us, you are unashamed to be called our God. Thank you for the examples of the word of God. Thank you for these men who have gone before us, these cloud of witnesses. Help us to look unto Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to go on in faith, obedient to you. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would lay aside every sin and every weight that besets us in the wraith and help us to go on for you, Lord, we ask. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised that he that is called us is also faithful to do it. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here that do not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would bow the knee before Jesus Christ this morning and confess him as Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.